Welcome to the High Road to Leadership. I am your host, Beverly Lewis, and I have the fortune to have another fascinating guest in the studio today. I, you're going to get to meet Dr. Carol Scott. Her first career defined her as a nationally recognized thought leader in the U.S. Systems for Early Care and Education. She began with a B.A. in Child Development. Then she added a BA in anthropology, which I'm also very interested in, an MA in early childhood education, and then she got her PhD in developmental psychology. Um, That was just the beginning of her career. She has gone on. I love it. She says she's in an astonishing second act with uh, making an influence and a difference. We're going to be talking today about relationships, about dreams, about the way we think. There's a lot of ground to cover, but let me just stop and welcome you to the studio. Hello, Carol. Hello, Beverly. I am so delighted to be here with you today. This is going to be a great conversation. It is. And I have to say that the thing that um, when I was reading about you, and I know you've done a TED Talk, and I love, love watching TED Talks and loved what you shared there. But the thing that really hooked me was uh, the comment that you believe that all of our success is rooted in the success of relationships. And boy, you are talking my language. And I do have to say one more thing in introducing you that this is kind of fun. I heard another uh, organ, uh, developmental psychologist, I, I actually, I know she was a psychologist, and talking in this past week, and she said, I am not a shrink. I am a stretch. Uh, <laughs> perfect. That is great language. Thought, yes. So I, I am expectant that you're going to stretch the way we think. That you were gonna, you're gonna stretch our expectations and our um, even challenge us to develop new abilities today. So let's begin and talk to me about this whole thing about why you believe that relationships are essential for success. Let's talk about your your perspective on that. Thank you very much. Well, you know, the heart of it is the hard scientific fact that we're born without a brain. We, each of us come into this world with a hundred billion loose neurons floating around in our skull in a little sauce of spinal fluid like pasta with with no end. But none of those neurons, very few of them, are actually connected to each other. What we have is the parts of our brains are wired up that are going to bring us sensory input. And then everything else gets wired based on sensory input. So each newborn infant's experience from the very first second after birth Everything that happens leads to neurons talking to each other, sending electrical signals to each other. And the more those neurons fire together with the same experiences over and over again, then the more they wire together. That's called Hebb's Law, and it's a neuroscience fact. And so whatever happens to us after we're born is what wires our brains. And the first three years are all about wiring up relationship skills. 85% of the brain wired up before you can really communicate well, get around by yourself very well, or really know what's going on by the time you're three years old. Okay. So here's a, I am fascinated by neuroscience and I, I'm fascinated by 
the newest research, you know, on neuroplasticity that as adults, you know, they used to tell us that once everything, all those neurons are in place, that that was that. But that's no longer what we know to be true, right? That is correct. So that's sort of the good news of the work that I do. So we we wire our brains completely, 95% wired by five years of age. And then my developmental psychology perspective is we spend about the next two years kind of anchoring that all in place and turning it into a personality. We're practicing the core skills for getting along and creating who we are. So by seven the personality is pretty well developed. And unless we do something different after that, that's the way we're going to operate as adults. But you're right, we can rewire all of that if it turned out to be a mess for us. The research mostly from working with stroke patients and brain injury patients, especially as we've had to develop medicine, uh, medical responses to people who have been injured by things like uh incendiary devices, little bombs in wars that cause tremendous uh, brain damage, we've learned that the other parts of the brain that aren't damaged can pick up the slack and relearn things like even basics like walking and talking. Okay. So, so how does this, how does this apply to adults? Because this is the thing I hear a lot. You know, I, I, I teach and train and work with, um, companies and teams on improving their culture, which is requires improving their communication and improving their relationship skills with one with themselves and with one another. But sometimes I run into those people who say, I am the way I am, I'm not going to change. Now, that is more of an intention than an actual fact is what we're talking about, right? It's a choice to do something different and to take the risk. You know, I remember, um, I tell people sometimes I started changing my brain wiring because I had to face my childhood trauma in therapy after I turned 30. And what, what became apparent is that it is an intentional effort. I have to be willing to jump off the cliff of, I know who I am into the unknown of who am I going to be if I do this? We don't know what the outcome will be when we start trying to change the way we interact with people with intention, but it is a choice to do it. And how do, how, you know, I know that you have founded so much of your work, so much of your work has come out of child psychology and out of the early childhood development. How does that, how do you bring that into adults and motivate them to, to move forward, especially if they're stuck? And a lot of people are stuck and don't know it because that leads us to another one of your focuses, which is another one of my favorite topics is self-awareness. And I am always astounded by the research that says that, let's see, I think it's 95% of people think they're self-aware when only 12 to 15% of people actually are. So give us some encouragement here. How can we, how can, I, I know that it, that the really the responsibility is to change ourselves and not not you know it's it's hard enough to change ourselves much less change other people so give us some um, give us some hope here 
Well, I think, you know, once you make the intention to change, it's really not that difficult, but it does begin with the willingness to be aware of things you're not aware of. And uh, here's a here's a good example from my own life. It's always best to tell on myself, I think. Um, when I was a young professional, as in my early 40s, I think, I had the opportunity to attend a leadership institute offered by the Center for Creative Leadership, which is an extremely high-level leadership training. And as a little nonprofit director, I was very fortunate to have a foundation send me there. Um, and one of the things that we did for that was uh, there was a 360 valuation from our peers, our our direct reports and our supervisor people. But then there were also a whole bunch of psychometrics, a bunch of assessments of our personalities and, and so forth. And what I heard consistently in all of that feedback, which they delivered to you over the course of the week with trained psychologists doing that delivery, what I heard consistently was that people interpreted me in a way that I didn't think I really was behaving. So I was seen by people as abrupt, brusque, and blunt. And when I started to really look at, well, I don't think that I'm blunt or brusque or abrupt. I think I'm a really nice person, but this is the way other people see me. It takes, I think it takes the courage to say what maybe, you know, they're right. They're not wrong. They are experiencing me that way. So if that's their experience and that's not what I'm trying to put out, what's the disconnect here? And what I learned over a little bit of time was I have social anxiety that's pretty high. Uh, from my trauma as a child. And so what people read as abrupt and brusque and blunt was me basically in interpersonal terror. I was anxious and eager to get away from the conversation because it was making me anxious. So learning things like that, it, it requires courage to face that's reality, whether I like it or not, what can I do about it? Wow, that's very interesting. And it's very interesting that it took the 360 assessment in order for you to see that. That's a, um, that's a good point. Because honestly, for me, I've worked with different assessments over the years. And, you know, the Hippocratic, which became the DISC, is also subjective. And that, to me, that, that, that limits it. I mean, it's still valuable without a doubt, but that's only the internal part of self-awareness. And what about the external part where it's how other people are perceiving you? And that's huge uh, when it comes to relationships. And you know, if it's just wow. one person who has an, uh, a perception of me that I'm a certain way and everybody else has a different perception, I will pay less attention to that one. But when 360 degrees all around me, everybody says the same thing, I should pay attention to that and not defend against it. And that's the easiest thing to do is just be defensive and say, that's not me. But that's not self-awareness. Well, okay. So here's another question then. And um, tell me if I put you on the spot because we haven't rehearsed all this. This <laughs> is, you know, this is a real conversation, which is what I want this, the High Road to Leadership podcast to be. But with self-awareness, you know, you you found an, a light into truth through the 360 evaluations, which for those who are listening, 360 means input from other people is, is the very simplest way to define 360. Um like, you know, in a business thing, it would be input from your peers, input from your supervisor, you know, input from others. What is a practical way that the average person can increase self-awareness without going through the psychological evaluation or an 
an assessment, a professional assessment. Is there, are there some ways to increase it? You know, I, during, during the work that I do as a coach, I offer sort of what I call quick and dirty assessments. They're nowhere near a valid psychometric or reliable psychometric test, but they're just sort of simple assessments asking you questions. Do you do this? Do you do that? So that's another way is just to find a, a source of a personality assessment that's simple and direct. But I think also we can begin to cultivate our awareness of other people's reactions to us. Now, I don't have a problem with that because as a child of uh, uh, from a household full of abuse, I have highly extended antenna. My radar goes far <laughs> and I am always paying attention to everyone's reactions. It's almost, it used to be crippling in a way, but if you're not paying attention to how other people react to you, you don't have that kind of extended self-awareness. It's about starting to look at what's happening when I go and talk to my team, when I go and meet with a team member, when I uh, give someone critical feedback, when I give someone positive feedback, what do I see happening next? And be as, I recommend that people be as videographer, uh, be a video camera, not an interpreter. What is it exactly physically that happens? Do you see a smile? Do you see eyes downcast? Do you see body postures that you would like to think about? What is it exactly physically that happens in response to whatever you're doing? And when you have then, I think the next step is when you have the kind of relationship with that person where it's appropriate, safe, and right to ask, you can explore further. I notice that you're not looking at me right now. What's happening for you? Wow. You can't do that with everybody, but you right. can with some. What That was a nugget when you said be a videographer, not an interpreter. That is a nugget. That is so simple, yet it's not what we naturally do. <laughs> and I, as a teacher of teachers in the early part of my career, when I was training early childhood educators, one of the habits that I had to consistently break was deciding what a child's behavior meant the first time you see it. Because what we need to do is separate our interpretation from the actual events and just record the actual events like you're a neutral narrator. The child picked up the block and handed it to the child next to him. He smiled. He put it down on the floor. You know, it's like, what would a camera record, not what do you think it means, until you've collected a body of evidence, a body of observations, until you really can see a consistent pattern, you don't really know what's going on. None of us can really tell what's going on inside another person, but we can begin to see when we see patterns that continue. And that's what's important about self-awareness to me. See the patterns. That is really good. You have, um, I know you've written a book and I noticed from watching your TED talk and um, reading your ebook, your a bookette, <laughs> um, is that you like acronyms. I know that you use the SAS acronym and I've heard other acronyms. So you can pick one because I heard several and they were all fascinating and we don't really have time to talk about all of them. But what if you had to give us an acronym that defines what you think is important um, for us to hear today, what which one would that be? 
I think I would choose self, S-E-L-F, which is part of the title of my first book, Just Be Your S-E-L-F, Your Guide to Improving Any Relationship. When I first started writing about these seven personality assets or interpersonal assets, um, I was calling them the seven childhood treasures. And in that book, that's what they're called. And now I call them the SAS, the self-aware success strategies, because I think it's much more communicates much better what the purpose is in their life. Um, And so yourself, if you have all of these self-aware success strategies kind of in your pockets and in your hands, and they're your tools, and you're being intentional about applying these strategies in your relationships, then what you are is self-governed, first of all. You are um, in charge of what you're doing. You have choice. You're ego aware. You're aware of what your mind is telling you, and you question it. You're aware that your mind can be wrong. L, you have leadership. You are the leader in your life. You are the person who sees the direction you're going and is driving your car that way. And then finally, free. You are free of self-imposed barriers. And you're mostly free of all other barriers too, but there's a lot of choice in an S-E-L-F, self-governed, ego-aware, leading and free person. Wow. That... Freedom. 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 That is, everybody wants it, but it's sometimes hard to define. And I guess everybody might have different definitions of it. So tell me again what it it means in your world. Um, For me, freedom really is about the understanding that I have choice and that I am not required really to do anything at all. I don't have choice about when I die or how I die, but I sure have choice about how I feel about it, how I think about it, and how I talk about it. I may not have um, uh, choices about, you know, getting sick or things like that, but in reality, there is choice everywhere else, and we deny it all the time by saying, I had to, I didn't have a choice, I must, I need to, instead of saying I choose to, because the truth is you're choosing everything. And, you know, people say when I do this in coaching or training, they say, oh, well, no, I don't have a choice about whether to get up and go to work. Yeah, you do. And the consequence, if you don't go, is you won't get paid or you'll lose your job. So there's a consequence you're responding to, you're choosing to show up for work, so you will get paid and keep your job. And you can choose not to, you can lie in bed and get fired. Sure, your choice. True. And that's freedom. That is freedom to know that. Yes, absolutely. Goodness gracious. It it, it seems like everything you say kind of leads me to, oh, but I want to know more about this. And oh, I want to know more about that. You mentioned the seven treasures. And I know, oh, can we talk a little bit about even one treasure? I love treasure. Everybody does. Sure. That's right. (laughs) And when we apply these treasures that we're supposed to mine in childhood, when we get to apply them strategically as adults, when we're using them as tools for success, they're really powerful. So I'll just name them quickly, and then we can focus on one or two of them. So when we're babies, our strategy is to trust when we're first born, because we can't do anything for ourselves. So we kind of have to trust that other people will take care of us. So our best strategy as a newborn is to trust. Then by the time um, we're about getting on towards two and we're walking and starting to communicate, our strategy is to express who we are, to tell the world, this is how I feel 
first of all. <laughs> this is what I think, and this is what I want. And uh, that's, I call, the strategy of independence. So we learn to trust other people. We learn to be independent and express who we are. And then at three, our strategy is to believe in all possibility, faith. I call that strategy. And it's not just about religious or spiritual beliefs, but it's about the ability to believe literally in everything, in any possibility, any dream you have, any uh, goal in your life, to believe that you can be who you want to be and be successful, all of those kinds of things. That's faith. And then that is what I call the heart of you, your capacity to trust, know who you are, and have faith. And then you start practicing that in the sandboxes of life. As a four-year-old, you need to learn how to get along with other people. And so you develop the strategy of negotiating with them for a win-win. I want this. You want that. How are we both going to get what we want? At five, you expand into a little bit wider world and start planning. And I call five-year-olds the strategic planners of the preschool world because they like to have a goal and then talk about how to get there and, you know, make a plan. So they'll, they'll sit in a little group of five-year-olds and plan for 15 minutes how they're going to play something. Well, you're going to be someone, you're going to be Luke, Luke Skywalker, and I'm going to be Darth Vader. And then the, you know, the spaceship is going to go here. So they plan everything in their lives and it's fun to watch. And then at six and seven, we use the strategies of compromise, which is just a more sophisticated, more complicated version of negotiation when there's more at stake and there are more things people want and acceptance at seven, believe it or not, the best strategy for us to develop is to let go of thinking that everything is going to go the way we want. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. You can be really nice and follow all the rules and somebody will bully you. You can be a really good child and love your mommy and she can get cancer and die. And so learning that the world is like a wheel that turns and you have to just keep rolling <laughs> um, is an important strategy. And we can do that at seven. Wow. Wow. I, get, I, I guess what this reminds me of is I often tell people that, you know, um, we need more kindergarten and less college sometimes when it comes to relationships and leading ourselves well. Um, what is that book that was so popular decades ago? Everything. I always I, needed to know I learned in kindergarten. Yes. It sounds like you could have teamed up with him and written a bestseller because I'm fascinated by the treasures, these treasures, because I, I hear what age you were saying, but I'm thinking, aren't those, I could I think that's your premise is that those are fundamental to success in life. And that's, so tell us about SAS. And then, yeah, let's, let's hear about SAS because is that in your, in your book at, that yes. you have available? Yes. Oh, tell, tell us about, about that. that. Yes. So I'm going to offer your, um, your listeners a little book at, at the end. And, and it is about how to apply these success strategies. I think of, I think of our leadership world as adults as the adult sandbox that we play in. So when we're in preschool, we play in the sandbox that's really sand. And we have to get along with the other people in the sandbox to get what we want and to be who we are. And then we get to grown-up land and the sandboxes are bigger and much more complicated. And there's people driving, you know, rigs all over there, shaping the sand. And 
we sometimes find ourselves at a loss as to how to negotiate through those more sophisticated relationships. And so the success strategies transforms these childhood treasures into something intentional. So when I go into a group, how can I use my strategy of trust to make this work better? How can I use the strategy of independence, of knowing who I am and expressing that in a clean way? Because without that, without the strategy of independence, you know what we are? Defensive. Oh, yeah. Right? Or bullies or... You know, so if you don't have that strategy for use, you're going to do what we call acting out in preschoolers without the ability. Think about think about a, a baby learning to walk a newborn, a, a one year old, you know, somewhere between nine and about 15 months of age. Most kids walk if their typical development is working. So what do they do when they first take their first few steps? Well, they fall down. Right. And then they get up and they take another step and they fall down. And we don't say that they're bad at walking when they do that. Well, when they're toddlers and they're learning how to express who they are, how they think, what they feel, they fall down. They're bad at it. They trip over themselves. They yell. They have tantrums. They're little, they act like little bullies sometimes. Two-year-olds are kind of feral anyway. <laughs> they're, they're not easy to get along with. But what they're doing is they're practicing the walking of expressing who they are. And we mess that up with toddlers all the time because we focus on the behavior as if it's who they are. And we say that they're terrible. We're the only country in the right, world, I think, that refers to our toddlers as terrible. Everybody else sees them as learning, and that's exactly what they are. So if you stumbled and fell at walking and you're a grown-up and you can't walk, nobody holds it against you. <laughs> but if you stumble and fall a lot still at expressing, this is what I think, this is what I feel, this is what I want, you are seen often as a micromanager, a bully, uh, somebody who is not easy to get along with in the adult sandbox of a workplace. And particularly if you're management and you're trying to lead a team and you have defensiveness and you have control issues and you have all those other kinds of things that come out of the messy strategy development when you were trying to get that treasure in your pocket as a child, you're not going to be successful in that role. Wow, this is just so practical. And yet I have to admit, you know, when you're talking about a two-year-old, I'm thinking, well, I don't have anything in common with a two-year-old. But I can see how as adults, yes, we actually do have something in common. And I love your analogy that um, that there's a there's always a learning phase for whatever stage we're in, yes. isn't there? Yes, there's, there's a that. There's a process going on where the developmental window is open to create success around something. And depending on that sensory input, depending on how we're being treated, we will do a great job with developing that strategy and wiring it, locking it into our brains, or we won't. And the more disrupted your environment is, Everything from a parent who just doesn't see who you are and isn't very self-aware and, you know, stumbles around a bit to a parent who actually physically harms you or um, invades your body's boundary in some ways. You know, those those wire the brain. And so we have to take a look at first, how am I behaving? Then how can I change that? And sometimes that leads us back to, oh, gee, what happened to me? And that can be the part where you need something beyond coaching and 
teaching and maybe you need some therapy yourself. You know, people who have had what we call adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, often uh, there's about 51, 52% of the population that's had at least one of these 10 adverse childhood experiences. And then there's about, I think it's about 17, 20% of us that have had four or more. And the more of them you have, the more dysregulated your adult behavior in the sandbox is going to be. Wow. That's fascinating. So we can learn more. You mentioned that you're going to give our listeners a book at, and so tell us about that and where they can get it. All right. So Becoming Your Sassy Self is a little 28-page cover-to-cover book at that explains the seven self-aware success strategies, where they come from, and how you can kind of assess them quickly in your own life. Um, And I would like to offer that uh, to anybody who sends me an email at carol at lcarolscott.com, if we can put that in the show notes for ease, then um, I'll return that book at as a PDF attachment. Fantastic. And I have to say the L. Carol Scott, you go by Carol, but it, it, because we all have like Beverly Lewis, there's a fiction writer named Beverly Lewis. So I use the Beverly Drew Lewis to distinguish myself. So is that, is that why you do that? Yes. My goodness. There are a lot of Carol Scott's in the world. (laughs) Very, very many of us. And uh, I always went by my middle name, but L. Carol Scott is my professional name. So um, be sure and put the name of Beverly Lewis's podcast in the subject line when you send it so I know where you heard about this. And I'll return that PDF. That is awesome. And I do recommend it. I read it. And one of the things I have to love about the book it is I, I find that so many um, nonfiction books are hard to finish. And when you've got 28 pages, it's easy to finish and you can get the guts of it and you can then get the book, you know, from Amazon if you want to take it deeper. But I love that you give us the bite size and give us um, information that is valuable and life-changing. And I just, I am fascinated. I'm absolutely fascinated and stimulated to think further about all of all that we've said. I can't thank you enough. I love making new friends. I thank you for taking your time to be on the high road to leadership. And I do want to encourage again, all the listeners to check the show notes um, for all the details of where they can contact you and where they can give me feedback on the show and suggestions, comments. I'm always open, but thank you for being on the high road to leadership in your sassy way. I absolutely love that. And I wish you the best. I always like to close with saying the best is yet to come. Thank you.